real to us that we would tell others how great Jesus is. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. As you're seated, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2 as we continue on in our series looking at the characters of Christmas. As we continue, we, we remind ourselves of what we've seen so far, of God's perfect plan, His perfect timing, of His redemptive purposes. We've been looking at these characters who have been showing us that God has been preparing a way and preparing a plan for His people to know God, that God's desire all along was that they would know who He is, but they would also have a relationship with Him. And so He told for for centuries of the coming of the Messiah through the prophets. We, we've looked at how Mary and Joseph were prepared. The people should have been prepared, and we're going to learn today how unprepared they were, right? But Mary and Joseph were prepared by the gospel that they had heard, by the word that they had heard through the prophets. And when they went to synagogue and they heard the word read, but that wasn't the story for most of the people of Israel. So today what we want to see is if... This baby Jesus is the king of kings he claims to be. Then what are the options for people in response to him? Okay, if if he is who he says he is, what are the options? There's a couple of logical options and then there's one very illogical option. And I'm just going to go ahead and warn you. We as Christians, if you are a follower of Christ in America in the 21st century, we tend towards the illogical option okay and and that is my thesis today if i had a thesis today i was helping kessie with a thesis statement for a research paper that she was writing and this would be my thesis statement is that we are illogical in most of how we respond to jesus but there are two logical responses and i want you to see those today along with our normal illogical response. Matthew chapter 2 says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been, been born king of the Jews? And Herod said, That's me. And you can immediately see, right? Conflict is going to arise. For we saw this star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained for them what time the star had appeared. And what we know about the rest of this story is he wants to know when the star appeared so he'll know how old the baby is so that he'll know how many children he needs to kill in Bethlehem to get rid of the baby. So this is the plot that is unfolding before us. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And we all know stars don't do that, right? We we get that. Like, this is a miracle star. Like, stars don't move and settle over top of homes so that people will know where to go. This is a miracle star. This is what's happening. 
When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, what I'm not going to do, unless I really feel like it in the middle of the sermon, is I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time dispelling all of the myths around these so-called three kings. Because there's a couple of things you need to understand. First of all, the number three does not show up. And the word king does not show up. So when we sing, we three kings... I'm not going to do that. Okay, we're not going to do it. Uh, (laughs) We could could totally go off the rails here, dispelling every myth. Uh, But there's a couple of things you do need to understand. First of all, these weren't kings. These were wise men, magi, magicians, right? Much like the magicians in Pharaoh's court that Moses had to go up against. The guys who said, yeah, we can turn staffs into snakes. That's not a big deal. Right? The guys who were constantly coming up with plots and that sort of thing, who were watching the stars to try to read the future, who were sinners. That God would not approve of what they were doing. They were lost and dead in their trespasses and sins. They, they weren't kings, they were wise men. Wealthy wise men based on the presence that they brought, but they were wise men. Maybe even they've gained all of those treasures by fooling a whole lot of people back home into giving them money so that they can know their futures. This is the reality of these guys. There's also no evidence that there's three of them. There's just three gifts. And I don't know about you, but I've given somebody three gifts before. So one person could get three gifts. We just know there's more than one because the Bible says that, okay, um, they're wise men. So it's plural. Okay, but we don't know that there were three. And the biggest thing is the, the wise men didn't show up like at the manger. Everybody caught that in the story, right? The wise men show up a couple of years later. The reason we have the kids with the crowns come in during the nativity scene, and we'll do that next week with the kids, is it's convenient. Because it would be really weird if two and a half years later, (laughs) three young boys just walked down the middle of the aisle, right? That would be odd. So we do it all together, um, and that's kind of the way this works. What we get in this story is it's not even about the wise men to begin with. What we see in this story is it's actually a story of Jesus. This is how the birth of Jesus happened. And we don't want to miss that by giving all our attention to wise men and Herod. But it is important for us to see their reactions to the reality of Jesus being born. In fact, this story of Herod's reaction and the wise men's reaction to hearing about the birth of Jesus is one of the most frightening and frustrating and intriguing stories connected to the nativity story and it's rooted not just in the mind and actions of a paranoid power-hungry tyrant herod it's actually in the, rooted in an ongoing saga of this battle we see in scripture between death and life between darkness and light between satan and his minions and god and his plan and his people it's a it's a battle that's been going on since god promised redemption to adam and eve and their descendants that there would be one who would come and crush the head of the serpent pitting satan and his minions against god and his plans and his purposes and his people see when we read this story we read the account of herod and these magi these magicians these pagan astrologers these gentiles who are actively involved in sin 
And in their magic and in their sin, all of the things that they were doing, God is pursuing them. God is wooing them and drawing them near. We're meant to be reminded that the reason the angels proclaimed peace on earth with the birth of Jesus is because we need it. Because by nature, all of humanity is at war with God. By our very nature, we are enemies of God. Without the grace of God found in Jesus Christ, we are against God, not for God. There's only two types of people. There are those who are, are citizens and soldiers of the prince of the power of the air, of the sons of disobedience is what the scriptures would call us. Or we are citizens and soldiers of the prince of peace and the king of kings. Those are the only two types of people there are in the world. And so these magi teach us something about the response we have to Jesus when he is claiming to be king. And you can see it right here in the passage. You can see that the the issue at hand is not magi. It's really focused on these two kings who are laying claim to the throne. Herod, a Roman-appointed king, and Jesus, the king of all kings. Look at it in verse 1. You see it there. How is Herod described? Herod, the king. Verse 2, the Magi come and they say, where is the one born king of the Jews? Verse 3, Herod, the king. Matthew is making this statement. Jesus is showing up on the scene and threatening the throne of the king. He is the king, though Herod claims to be king. Douglas Sean O'Donnell in his uh, commentary said this here in Matthew 2 the kings we must focus on are not the supposed three kings from the east but the two kings laying claim to the throne Herod the king of the Jews and Jesus the God appointed king of all kings and as it pertains to the second king the Lord Jesus and our relationship to him there are three responses that we can have according to the scripture there are three responses that are possible and those responses are indifference hostility or worship. So it's a hostility, indifference, or worship. And it's in these three responses that we find ourselves somewhere today. Hostility, indifference, or worship. My, my prayer is that we make the right choice. That we realize we want to be logical, but we also want to be right. The, the first of the responses is Herod's response. Those who want to be king will respond to Jesus with hostility. If you want to be on the throne and Jesus claims the throne, the only option is hostility. This is totally logical and it's Herod's reaction. It makes sense, doesn't it? If somebody is in power and they want to be king and Jesus claims to be king, there will be war. There will be hostility. This is the world we live in, a world that's opposed to Christ and his kingdom, a world that has been and will continue to be hostile to the king of kings. They killed him. This is the reality of the world we live in that constantly opposes the king of kings. Why? Because every human being since the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden has 
questioned the goodness of God, has questioned the word of God, has heard the whisper of the serpent. Did God really say? And has been wooed and has been tempted again and has fallen, has been under the trance of this serpent. As Paul would say, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. This is the reality of all humanity outside of Christ. We love the things of the world, and therefore we are against a God. That's what James says in James 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy to God. This is, this is the plight of all humanity, that we are enemies of God outside of Christ. At every turn, the biblical narrative shows us that Satan is constantly scheming. And that's how he's described, right? He came to steal, kill, and destroy. This is his whole scheme. He's after us. He's trying to actively destroy and derail God's redemptive plan. From the lies in the Garden of Eden to the murderous intentions of Cain's heart against Abel to the rivalry of Jacob and Esau to Joseph's brothers and all of their all of their jealousies, to famine and war, to Pharaoh's killing of the children of Israel, to the rebellion of God's people in the wilderness, to the warring nations in the promised land, to all of the kings and how evil they were, to King David's own murderous heart and selfish desires, to God being rejected utterly by Israel, to the Assyrians and the Babylonians coming and taking the people into exile. At every turn, there are flesh and blood realities, but there's something going on behind the scenes. Is everybody walking with me? There's, there's these flesh and blood, um, there's these flesh and blood flashpoints like Pharaoh and the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But there's a serpent behind the whole thing. And everyone is hostile towards God. And now as we come to this perfect timing of God to bring forth Jesus into the world, to bring forth this Messiah, the, the one who represents that serpent, serpent, that dragon behind everything else, his name is Herod. This Roman appointed king of the Jews, a murderer of his own family, a paranoid tyrant who offed anyone who stood in his way, a genocidal maniac who would sacrifice the children of Bethlehem just to salvage his own power. He is the representation of this evil that is opposed to God and his plan. There to try to kill the Messiah before he can take his rightful place. So at every turn, the biblical narrative shows us that we're not warring against flesh and blood. See, our war is not against Herod. When we read this, we were like, somebody needs to off Herod. Somebody needs to get rid of him from the story. But we remember now Herod is not the enemy because we don't war against flesh and blood. We war against powers and principalities. We war against the power that's going on behind the power on the throne, against the prince of the power of the air, against the great dragon who hates God, and who is the king of all who do not bow to Jesus as king. It's a great dragon who will stop at nothing to destroy God's Messiah king. He, he tried to do it by stopping the Israelites in the desert, right? And in Egypt, and he failed. And he tried to destroy the people of God from whom the Messiah would come, and he failed. He tried to stop the kingdom of heaven, and he failed. At every turn, he was thwarted and defeated. And the same thing happens here. 
He goes to kill all of the babies in Bethlehem to, in order to kill the Messiah. And what happens? God intervenes. God intervenes and saves the Messiah King. There's a picture in Revelation chapter 12 that makes this clear. As the Apostle John is talking about in, in this vision, is showing these signs of what has been happening, continues to happen with the people of God, and specifically with the nation of Israel and the birth of Jesus. And this is what it says in Revelation chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. I believe that that's Israel. That's representing the nation of Israel with the, with the 12 tribes and giving birth to the Messiah King. And in this agony of giving birth, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Here's the dragon. And so maybe a few years ago, I told you, I think every nativity scene should have a red dragon somewhere around, right? Ready to devour the baby Jesus. But the God, in his providence and in his care, and because he will not be defeated, delivers the baby, delivers the victor. Glenn Scribner wrote a poem about this. We've shown the video before. It's called, There's a Dragon in My Nativity. This is what it says. There's a dragon in my nativity, dreadful and immense. The shepherds quake, the wise men shake and spill their frankincense. The cattle are lowing and the baby is awake while Joe and Mary tremble. Oh, this must be some mistake. There's a dragon over Bethlehem. I don't know how he came. I don't think a donkey could have borne the dragon's frame. I don't think the census had been called for such as him. And I'm certain that when dragon knocked, no room was at the inn. There's a dragon by the stable. I don't know why he's there. He hasn't brought a present and he only seems to glare. He hovers over David's town that still beneath him lies. Yet no one's sleep is dreamless. Underneath his piercing eyes. This dragon isn't visible with ordinary sight. You cannot snap a selfie or televise his flight. Unseen, he stands for every power that stands against the earth. The death, disease, and darkness overshadowing each birth. This dragon is an enemy of all that's good and true. This monster lies and steals and kills. And he's coming after you. Above each crib, the dragon hovers. Sure to swallow whole. Rulers, empires, beauty, joy. A flesh and blood black hole. But dragons always meet their match. They, they always meet their doom. A hero rises to the fight to cast them into gloom. And so at this nativity arose another player. The baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. He was a dragon slayer. He'd come to fight through Herod's plot. Through dangers big and small, he took on evil, sickness, death, and triumphed over all. A dragon or a baby? Just who would win the fight? It wasn't really fair, you see. The child was a knight. From high above and long before, he knew what must be done. He knew the dragon waiting here, and still he chose to come. See, there's a dragon in my nativity, a fierce and monstrous danger. 
but fiercer still the bravery and love within the manger. So this is something we don't really think about at Christmas, is it? That Jesus didn't enter this pristine picture. Like the biggest problem Mary and Joseph ran into wasn't where are we going to have this baby. It was who's going to kill this baby. Because the world was opposed to a new king coming to the throne. This baby would be born into a world of strife, a world of fear, a world of anger, a world of spiritual warfare against God and his people. A world which bowed willingly to the dragon. A world not unlike our world today. And Herod is just another picture of this dragon. Another flesh and blood reminder of the spiritual war against God and his people. Herod is that reminder for us today that we do not war against flesh and blood. But the power hungry of this world are just a reminder of the dragon who seeks to destroy. And God's people and God's plan cannot fail because we have a king who is mightier, a savior who is always victorious. So you see the Herod is opposed. He's hostile towards this king. But notice here also in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, heard about the king of the Jews being born, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So it wasn't just Herod who was troubled. And this idea of being troubled carries with it that you're upset, like the apple cart is upset, like my life is turned upside down, like I have this gut feeling like something is not right here. Notice that all Jerusalem was bothered along with Herod. Why? Maybe they were bothered because whenever a tyrant gets bothered, everybody's life is going to be miserable. But could it be also that maybe many had found their place and their comfort and their existence and their belonging in a world that didn't have Jesus on the throne, didn't have a Messiah as necessary. Maybe they had learned to kind of float in and out of the world. not have to worry about God's law too much. Just kind of make it through. They had learned to work under the radar. Not have to stand out too much, just get by, maybe even succeed a little bit. But now this new king would upset the apple cart and turn things on their head. And no one likes that, right? No one likes for their life to be turned upside down. But Jesus, this baby king, would turn the whole world upside down. So the very people that God had spent hundreds of years and dozens of prophets preparing for this king to come would reject him. The very people that should have been preparing and longing for this child king were bothered when he showed up. That's what John 1 tells us that we read earlier. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected by men. Luke chapter 2, when Simeon and Anna are standing there with the baby Jesus, and we're going to look at this on January 1st, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. This baby would be opposed at every front. All earthly powers, all those who are bought into the world's value system, to the world's ethic, will ultimately be opposed to the word and to the ways of Jesus. Because in the end, there can only be one king and one kingdom. So if you're on the throne 
and Jesus claims the throne, one is going to win and one is going to lose. There's only one kingdom that lasts forever. You keep reading through the passage there in Matthew chapter 2, there's something interesting that happens when Herod died. See, his throne would not last. His kingdom would not last. The kingdom of our God in Jesus Christ does. So all, all this that I've talked about, this sort of hostility towards Jesus, I think it's an incredibly logical way to deal with Jesus. Now, there's a big difference between logical and fruitful. Okay? So it's totally logical that if I'm a king on a throne and another king shows up, that I would be hostile towards him. Totally logical. But if that king is stronger and mightier and eternal, I'm going to lose. So it's logical to be hostile towards Jesus. When I look at the world around us, I say, nope, totally makes sense. The people who would just openly admit, no, I don't like God and I don't like Jesus. I'm not a fan. I don't like them and I'm going to oppose everything. You know what? I can at least say thank you for being honest. And I can see the heart of I want to rule my own life. I want to be on the throne. I don't think that's a real danger for most of us in this room. I don't think most of us in this room are going to sit here and go, you know, yeah, hostility towards Jesus. Just not a fan. Got up this morning, put on my nice clothes. Got my crying kids in the car, drove all the way across the county. Got into the church. It was cold when I got in the car. I even had to go out early and warm up the car. All because I hate Jesus. So, yes, I understand you are here because you are not naturally hostile towards Jesus. I get that. But maybe the illogical way we respond is what you struggle with. And that's what happens next. It's easy to see how Herod was being logical here and opposing Jesus. But the problem is the religious leaders had a completely different reaction. And their reaction was indifference. Indifference is the response of those who know the truth but don't live like it's true. And that's what I think is a greater danger for us, for believers, for the church. This was the decision made by the religious leaders surrounding Herod. Look, look at verse 4. When the, when, the, when the Magi come in and say, hey, where's the newborn king? They, he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they told him. So he didn't say, hey, where's a king being born? He says, where's the Messiah being born? So at this point, there's this recognition. There's something special going on here. This Messiah, I want him out of here. I want him taken care of. And here's what all of the scribes and the chief priests say. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They did not have to look up the answer. They knew the answer. They knew what the prophet said. This is one of those moments where you can almost see the line of them there. And here it goes. Somebody tell me where the Messiah is going to be, going to be born. And they all like reach for the buzzer at the same time, right? They're like, me, 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 me. They want to prove how worthy they are before Herod to say, hey, we know where he's going to be born. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. They heard the Magi. They heard the report. They saw the star and they go, hey, let's tell Herod where this baby's going to be born. It, they were the ones who should have known. 
You would have thought that they had to put together a search party. Let's go and find the baby so we can worship him. We've been waiting. We've been longing for our deliverer, our Messiah. The prophets foretold, and now it's coming true. Hey, somebody go check. Was there a virgin who had a baby anytime soon, recently? Like, so, like let's, let's ask. Let's find out some information. Instead, they go, eh. Here, do with them as you wish. Indifference. They just bow to Herod's desires and say, here's what the Bible says. I mean, they don't even seem curious. Could this be the one? He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. See, they knew the facts. They were really good at Bible trivia games. They knew how to dress right. They knew how to speak right. They knew all the songs. They knew where to be and what to be at all times. But when the one they've been waiting for shows up, meh, they couldn't be bothered. They couldn't go a few miles down the road to see him. And that's what Douglas O'Connell says. He says, if I told you Jesus was just a few miles down the road, like the scribes and the priests were being told here, just miles away. So for us, if Jesus was at Westchester Commons, okay, imagine if messengers come in and say, we've been following this star. Jesus is at Westchester Commons. Where? Where is Jesus? We'd be like, well, that's Westchester Commons. We see a target sign. <laughs> right? We're like, that's Westchester Commons. We know. We see a weird traffic circle. That's Westchester Commons. We, we immediately know, right? And they're like, well, we're going there to see him. And we're like, nah, the traffic. Uh, I mean, I was going to... We were going to eat here in Powhatan after church this Sunday. You know, tonight we actually, we have that, we have the Off Our Rockers group going on the party bus to see the Christmas lights. Now, good news, though, good news, because we're meeting at Westchester Commons. So maybe we could get there at 4.15 instead of 4.30 and we can spend 15 minutes with Jesus. Maybe we can even invite him onto the party bus with us. You see, like all of a sudden, our plans aren't going to change. That's what indifference looks like. And how do I know this is a problem? And obviously I'm speaking to the choir here, right, because you're all here. But how many reasons that are really excuses can we find week after week after week after week? To not show up where we know Jesus shows up every week. How easy is it for us to go, I know where Jesus is going to be. He's going to be with his people. He's promised that wherever we gather, he's in the midst of us. I know where Jesus is going to be. Let me see what other things I can come up with to do. That's what indifference looks like. And I think it's a, a plague in our culture that so many good things can supplant Jesus who is eternal. But what this story reminds us is that we are not the main character in the story. It's not simply enough to not be hostile towards Jesus. See, it's not simply enough to say, I don't hate Jesus. I got no problem with Jesus. That's just indifference. And I think sometimes we demonstrate indifference because what we want is convenience. 
But this isn't an issue of convenience. This is an issue of eternal importance. See, Jesus himself would call people to leave house and lands and family, to leave their jobs to follow him. He would call people to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. And this is the calling for all who know who Jesus is, who know the facts, right? Who know that he was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, who know that he is the son of God. Those of us who know he's God in the flesh, know, those who know he lived a sinless life for our good and our salvation, those who know that he died the death we deserved on the cross, those who know that he took the wrath of God for our sin upon himself, those of us who know that he rose victorious and is seated at the right hand of the Father, those of us who know that he is ruling and reigning right now, victorious. The calling for us, It's not just to know that, but to start living like it. See, indifference looks like this. When I coach coach volleyball and I would call out a player, a lot of times it was Kessid, and I would call out a player on the court and I'd say, hey, you need to, hey, you need to, and the answer was, I know, I know, coach. My response, then do it. If you know it, then do it. That's... That's what it looks like. So you know that Jesus has called you to be an ambassador of Christ. You know that? Then do it. You know God has told you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. So do it. You know the Lord has told you, you will be my witnesses. So do it. You know who he is. You know what he's called you to. Now the issue is do it. Indifference looks like knowing but not doing. And I think it's something we need to be aware of. It's not a real option for the believer. It's not even a logical option. If Jesus is king, then when he speaks, we say, yes, sir. It's the way kings work. But there is another Logical option. Indifference is totally illogical, but I think we find ourselves there too often. There is another logical option. Hostility is logical, just not fruitful. Indifference is illogical and will kill you. Because at some point, those same religious leaders who were indifferent there, you remember later in Jesus' life, they were the same people who were then hostile. The very ones calling for his death later. And indifference that doesn't change turns to hostility. It's what breeds hostility. And so here we are with what we need is another logical response, and that's what we see in the Magi. How ironic, right? The religious leaders miss it. The king misses the king. The religious leaders miss the religious leader. But the pagan astrologers following a strange star worship. See, those who receive Jesus as king respond to him in worship, and are invited into his eternal kingdom. And that was the response of the Magi. If worship is one logical reaction to the king who comes and usurps your throne, then worship is the opposite logical reaction. When he takes over and he takes the throne, you bow. And that's what these pagan astrologers, these Magi, these magicians who come to town following a mysterious star, all they know is a king has been born And when they see him, they fall on their faces and worship him. That's what verse 9 said. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose before them 
until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Daniel Darling wrote that Matthew is showing us that if we want to be true worshipers, then we have to worship the true king. See, it's not, I want to worship, and I want to be at the center of that. It's that if we're going to be true worshipers, we worship the true king. While the religious leaders, the scribes, and the chief priests were indifferent to the newborn king, a group of Gentiles came, not to worship the king who sat on a throne in Jerusalem, but the child in a home in Bethlehem. These men from the east remind us, of Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman at the well when she asked Jesus about worship, like, who do we worship? Where should we worship? How should we worship? What does this look like? And Jesus responded in this way in John chapter 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He's saying salvation comes through the Jews. He's a Jew standing in front of them, born of the Jews. See, salvation comes from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here because he is there when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. See, it's God's design and desire to draw worshipers to himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. And he starts right at the beginning. With sinners, magi, magicians, people that would have been stoned if they were Jews. Think about that. They would have faced the death penalty if they were in the nation of Israel. And he brings them into life. Pagans, outsiders, brought into the king's court, into the presence of Almighty God. Those who seemed to have all the right religious answers were blinded to their need of a Savior. They had comfort and position. They were resistant to the good news, blinded by their own self-righteousness. But God was working already to draw the outsiders to himself because Jesus' kingdom is a global kingdom. That's good news for us, isn't it? Because I want you to think of these wise men, these magi, as the first of us. See, I think sometimes we think about the Magi and we go, how different, how odd, how strange. But they weren't because we live in the most affluent country in the most affluent time in all of history. We, and we go to whatever we can. We, we, we go and we, we watch stocks rise and fall and we try to tell the future with what our money is going to do. No problem with investing. So if you, you know, I do it too. Okay. But you get what I'm saying? We're constantly trying to tell the future. We're constantly trying to figure out what's next. We are these so-called wise men. Outside of the people of God. Who need a sign, who need a savior, who need one to draw us in. And in Jesus' kingdom, a young child receives the worship of the rich and the royal. In Jesus' kingdom, he gave up his throne to serve. Those who would give up their pride will now find rest for their souls. In Jesus' kingdom, those who realize that real power is not found in their wealth or their riches or wisdom, but in the person and worth of Jesus will bow in true worship. 
And in Jesus' kingdom, here's the good news. God uses every tool he has to draw people to himself, even a star in the sky. You know what his tool is right now? To draw people to himself? Us. How unlikely (laughs) that he would choose that his tool to draw people to himself would be us. Those that he has drawn to himself, he now sends out so that others would see the light. So I think we have a whole lot to learn and apply from these wise men. And as the band gets ready to come up and lead us out in song, I want you to consider a couple of practical realities about worship. If worship is the response of your heart to knowing that Jesus is claiming the throne, the first thing you need to understand is worship is not cheap or convenient. This is a plague on the indifferent religious culture of the 21st century in America. Worship is super convenient, isn't it? Like, we make it so convenient, don't we? We have two times on Sundays. Like, you get to come in, we got heating and air conditioning, right? We even replaced the pews with comfortable chairs. Some of you didn't like it at first, then you sat in them, and you were like, why didn't we do this years ago? (laughs) Right? It's like... Like, we've made this super convenient, haven't we? In fact, you know, if you go on vacation, all you got to do is, like, watch in your car as you're driving, right? Like, we won't even judge you to your face if we're doing that, right? I mean, this is how convenient we've made it. But worship isn't meant to be convenient. I think that's one of the best things about this time of the year, is if you do it right, What it does is it actually draws you out of your routine and makes everything a little less convenient, right? It makes you pause. We need to be reminded of our need of humility before God, to be inconvenienced. And that's what worship is supposed to be. This is supposed to inconvenience you. You're supposed to have, you're supposed to make a choice. On a Sunday morning. There are other things I could do, but I will do this. That's what it's meant to do. Indifference makes the wrong choice. Worship makes the right choice. Worship is to display the worth of God himself. We make the right choice in worship because he is worthy. Because we understand that he deserves to be worshipped. This is where the gifts come in. The gifts that they gave. Gold, frankincense, myrrh were really only important in what they symbolized, the kingship of Jesus and the gold, the deity of Jesus and the frankincense, the humanity and suffering servant through the myrrh. But when we worship, whatever we bring to him in worship should show his worth. So think about this. If, you, if yours is gifts of service, like you serve around the church or you serve others, do it with humility and with passion. Do it in Christ-likeness. If you're going to Sing. Sing with your whole heart because he's worth it. Your finances, give as if all good things come from him and belong to him. If you say, my family, we want to be dedicated to the Lord, then then serve together because he's worthy. Like Sacrifice other things for the sake of the one who's worthy. And finally, worship is the requirement of everyone because he's worthy. 
Jesus deserves to be worshipped by everyone. And one day Jesus will be worshipped by everyone. One day, even though he came as a servant, though he entered our world lowly and poor, one day he will be revealed to every heart and every eye as the King of Kings. So there'll be no room for indifference when Jesus returns. And all hostility will be squashed when Jesus returns. He will crush every enemy and lay waste to every stronghold. And he'll bring everything under his feet. There will only be room for worship when Jesus returns. And no one will have a choice. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So one day that's going to happen. The good news is by his grace, he's giving you the ability to do it now. By choice, by grace, by his love, by his goodness. God is drawing people to himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. So wouldn't you want to be a part of that? To give, to help others share the good news, like light into darkness, like stars lighting the path to the Savior. And God is drawing people to worship him right here in Powhatan. But why won't you take a one of the invitation bags, put it on somebody's door? Take three seconds out of your day an opportunity for somebody to hear the good news of Christ. See, when we walk by a table where we say, hey, I could invite somebody to church with this really convenient, easy way to do it. And our response is, meh. There's danger in that. We see the danger, right? So let's not be indifferent. God may be drawing you to himself right now. Maybe you have been indifferent for far too long. Maybe it's been, sure, Jesus is the Savior. I know that, but I don't really feel like I need a Savior right now. Maybe you think Jesus may be the King, but I've got plenty of time to rule my own life before I have to deal with Him. Maybe you've been outright hostile towards God, fighting Jesus for control of your life. You know that He deserves to be worshipped and obeyed, but you keep fighting to keep yourself on the throne. The call today is very simple He deserves to be worshipped. Follow the example of these wise men. Know that though they thought they were searching for the king, what was actually happening is the king was searching for them. And he'll use every tool he has, including a star, to draw you in. It is God's desire and his grace that draws you to bow to him today in worship because he deserves it. And Father, I pray that we would bow to Jesus because he deserves it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand to sing.